1: Do you feel like your career is consuming you? Are you afraid to go through the suck of making a big change? And what would you do once you freed yourself from your current situation? Robert Kandel spent over 10 years working 90 hour weeks in a business that devoured his life. Today, we're gonna talk about how he got honest with himself, transformed his life, and learned to capitalize on his mistakes. Uh, welcome to The New Man. Today I'm talking with Robert Kandel. I'm going to read his, some of his bio off of his website. It says he's hailed as a part football coach, part loving dad, and part slightly crazed drill sergeant. I like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, after building a successful consulting firm in San Francisco, he then took his business acumen and co-founded One Taste in 2004 with Nicole Day Uh, If you're listening out there, I did a, a uh, interview with her a while back all about Orgasm, women's orgasms is very, very, uh, enlightening interview. Um, after that, you know, that whole thing, like that business was taking on the challenging task of bringing conscious sexuality to the mainstream market. Robert built that company from scratch to a high seven figure international corporation. He left one taste in 2004 to do his own gig. Uh, these days he's an accomplished teacher, coach, and lecturer. He brings his enthusiasm and acumen to his weekly podcast, tough love where you talk about uh, relationships, intimacy, communication and gender dynamics and you can learn more about tough love by visiting toughlove.live and that's tough with T U F F. So Ooh, that's a lot Rob.
2: Thanks for talking yeah. today, man. My pleasure. It's really an honor to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
1: It's been a while. I think I think the last time we sat down was a few years ago. I remember we had a, a lunch at Earth Cafe
2: there in uh October 2014. Was that Oh, you you know yeah. that date, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Was there some
1: significance yeah. to that 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 date? What was going on for you at that time?
2: Well, that was a huge time for me. I mean, monstrous. I had just exited One Taste about three months prior, and I was just searching. I was in definitive search mode, and okay. that seminar, Rich Lipkin seminar, I went to, um, or we went to, excuse me, uh, was a huge learning and experience for me, and I got to meet you. So it was a, it was a great time. <laughs> cool. Well, I want
1: to I want to lead up to that. So, kind of let's 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 go back. I want to get more of your story because, for this conversation today, you know I met you at that time and I was aware that you were going through that, and I've been through a version of that. I don't think that mm. I don't think we're ever done with that. I think that we're always kind of in some level of of uncertainty and what's next. I think it's a myth that we somehow arrive and we're done. You know, we're mm-hmm. we're done with the uncertainty, and so. I, I want to help the guy out there that's listening, and maybe he's in a, in a situation that looks good from the outside, and there's there's support for him to stay in that scenario, but really mm-hmm. inside he knows there's a next thing for him, but there's that uncertainty, there's that that dip, there's that thing to go through and then come out the other side. So that's why I wanted to talk to you today, because I knew you th- in that uncertainty, and I, now I see you in a different place, and I just want to get that story. So. Walk us through, like, what was life like before you and I met a few years ago? What was going on for you? Uh, you were working with One Taste. Kind of walk us through that.
2: Wow, well, it's a huge story, uh, as as you'd expect. I, I started One Taste in 2004, but really my life changed in um, the summer of 1998, and I went to Burning Man. For those people who know what Burning Man is, it's a festival in the desert. And for me, it was a huge life change because I walked in a yuppie uh, in, you know, five bedroom house, wife, you know, expecting the grandchildren. And but I really just um, found myself. That was a whole new person at Burning Man. And fast forward to 2004, Open One Taste and had, you know, just totally went from a computer geek to running an organization that taught people around intimacy, communication and sexuality. Okay. And through everything I had into it, it wasn't just a job; it was my life. It was my lifestyle. It was my friends. It was my community. It was where I lived. It's where I ate. It was everything. And, and so, I imagine
1: there was kind of a uh, kind of a rise, and then it, it was great for a while. And then did it not be so great? Or what was what was your experience like? It, kind of overarching there.
2: It was amazing in the beginning, and um, it was hard. I mean, I felt it was hard the whole time. The first. We weren't profitable until the eighth year of our business. Wow. And eight years is a long time to be living in fear of lack of success. Well, let me we ask started, you
1: that. I mean, look, what kind of doubts were you going through eight years in? I imagine most people are like, they're like six weeks in and they're like, shit, I think I'm out of here. I'm not making oh, any money.
2: It was, it was, well, it wasn't just making money. I had invested all my money into it. I had a house in San Francisco. I walked in basically with a million dollars of, you know, stocks and bonds and a house. And by the time before we made profit, all of it was invested. There was no cash. Mm -hmm. And so if I was going to start again, I was going back to, you know, computer programming or something. But along the way, we had little angels pop up or little things happen. Like there was a time we wanted to quit in late 2008. And then the New York Times came to us and said, okay, it's time to write our article about you. You know, and we ended up on the front page of the style section in March of 2009 you know, we're about to quit, and then we get the phone message. Okay. Um, we had another investor come in and really just put his time and energy and love into it. Okay. Uh, you know, Something would just seem to happen and to keep us in motion. So even though it was hard and lack of profit, there were, there were signs along the way that we shouldn't just quit.
1: Okay. So you were pushing, and, and I can imagine it was just tunnel vision at that point. It was like, just get this going. Was there any self-reflection about Hey, what about me? What about what I'm wanting in life? What you know? Where's this going? Or was it just the business? Because it can, it can. I, sometimes we could just get eclipsed by that, or well, who we are can get eclipsed by what we're working on.
2: It's a it's a really great question, and it's an interesting mix because I was growing so much as a man in that experience. I was expanding my skill sets. You know, I was a COO, CFO, and CTO. That's operating officer, financial officer, and technological officer. Of this company that was growing, we had nine divisions in nine cities, including London. All these you know, technology, and I was so pushed as a man that I loved the expansion, and I was totally exhausted. It was 80, 90 hours a week for five years, nonstop, mm-hmm. no vacations, just pedal to the metal. So I felt trapped in it, and I felt expanded by it. So it was a complicated equation.
1: I've got friends that are making great money, seven figures, working ninety hours a week, and I, I'm just like, "What are you doing? Why? Why? Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. get it." Um, and but I do get it. Like they're just in it, yeah. and it's it's it just becomes the only thing that they know how to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I've been in that situation, it's just it can it can just gobble you up, and there's no other. There's been no time put into doing anything else, so it just becomes like, "What else am I going to do? This is mm-hmm. this is the only thing I've got going on." Was that kind of the case for you?
2: Totally. And it was, I was determined. It was like the raw male ego. And my, mm. I can credit my dad for this too. Cause my dad was like, not so supportive of me starting an organization based on orgasm. He was just like, you're an idiot basically. <laughs> and God bless him. You know, he's an old school New York Jew. You were an idiot for doing
1: that business or you were an idiot for working that hard?
2: Yes. Of, I was pretty okay. much an idiot, you know? And <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I was, and from his point of view, I could get it. You know, I was, I was rising up the corporate ladder. I had really great skills before I started One Taste. I had successful consulting business, but I believed in this, and I believed that I wanted to make it my impact in the world. I didn't want banks to help banks make more money. I wanted the common man to learn how to have a happier life. Okay, and so One Taste to me was my gift to the world. It was my impact. It just took a very long time for the profits to come in.
1: When did, when did you start to get the sense that a course correction was what was needed for you? And what did it it start to show up as? Because I can imagine it's just like, ah, no, 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 no. I'm just tired. I haven't had a vacation. I want to help that guy that's listening out there start to identify if that's happening for him in his own life.
2: I was pretty dedicated to it for the first eight years, 2004 to 2012. And I just really believed in it, and so I was thick in it. And then we changed direction, and it was a wise choice. We really focused more on sales, and we started to open up cities, and we started to expand. And then I started to go on the road. And so pretty much I was on the road nonstop for a year and a half, you know, teaching a city, be there for an extra day, jump on a plane, go to another city. I mean, it was every weekend for a year and a half, teaching or holding a course. And I was living in uh, Los Angeles and really enjoying living in LA and I had a girlfriend. I had my yoga practice. I had my friends. And then the company said, we need you to move to San Francisco. This is in July of 2013. We need you to go run the San Francisco division and we want you to go tomorrow. Mm. And this was probably my eighth move of my home base, not, you know, my home base, my eighth move in probably two or three years. Wow. And I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. It was a simple pop in my head, and it was the first time I had truly felt that feeling. I don't want to do this anymore, and I had to admit to myself that things had changed. And I sat and thought about it, but it was respecting that one really powerful yet quiet voice.
1: Well, that, that's amazing. So it it wasn't kind of like a building fire in you, or unless it just that pop was it, it had been there, but that it was that that ask was just like nope. That's it. I'm done, and you and you recognize it in the moment.
2: In retrospect, it was been building for a while. It probably been building for years. In, yeah, you know, like I I couldn't have relationships I wanted just because of the of the job. I couldn't be free. I couldn't go out on a Saturday night. You know, I was working nonstop, and so in retrospect, it was building for years underneath the surface. It's sort of that little annoying thing that I non-confronted, and then when I hit that point of I don't want to do this anymore. All the things I had not confronted flooded in. And it was a rough night. I remember it was Saturday night. I was Saturday night alone in my room, sitting on my bed, journaling, crying, and thinking, okay, I need to do something. This is not my life anymore.
1: Were you trying to talk yourself into like, oh, I'm just going through a phase. I just need to kind of sack up and push through this and stick with it? Or was there a wrestling match going on for you? Like, well, what else are you going to do? You don't have anything lined up. Like, What was that? What was that kind of, was there a duality kind of going on for you at that time?
2: There was no duality at this point. And maybe that's the benefit of letting it, you know, sit there for years before. So it was pretty much, I was done.
1: You knew you had that certainty.
2: I had no doubt in Mm -hmm. my mind. I was like, I am done. Now, the thing that happened next was interesting because I said to myself, <clears throat> Number 1, the company is not ready for me to leave because everything is in my head. I have no systems, I have no documentation, I haven't trained people to do what I do. The second thing is the company wasn't in financial state for me to buy me out. And so I wanted a really strong runway when I exited. So I made the agreement with myself. I said I will stay for 2 years, maybe 3, until this thing is solid and I'm not going to tell anyone. Wow, interesting.
1: So you knew you made the choice to leave, but then you, I'm going to stay in so I can build myself a runway, and then I'll leave.
2: Yep. And it it was it was no one didn't tell anyone.
1: And 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 explain that because because being honest and being transparent about leaving would have what? What was the what was the story you had
2: in the company culture? And we can go into this a little bit. um, In the company culture, it was about cohesion. It was around connection. It was around relationship. And the viewpoint was, if you weren't all in, then, you know, you'd have to kind of exit your position or change positions. And I also knew that I I was the one who needed to be in this position of COO, CTO, and CFO because no one else had the skill set. So I just said to myself, okay, this is my own internal journey. I'm going to figure out the rest of my life, and I'm going to do everything I can to get this place cleaner and solid and a strong foundation when I go so I can leave feeling that. I wanted that part of myself really secure.
1: How did you know that that was what was true for you instead of it being uh kind of a long way to avoid ripping the band-aid and just leaving in that moment because that sounds like a great that's what resistance would say, right? Resistance mm-hmm. to change would say, "Oh, well you got to do x y and z before you can go." So uh, how did you, how did you navigate that?
2: Well, really bluntly, is I didn't want to leave, you know, the doorway with, you know, x amount of dollars. Like I wanted, I knew what the potential this company was. And at that time I saw where the company was going. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I knew the number I wanted in my head. I also knew that if I, you know, exited that point, I would get a fraction of it. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to build this company up. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to let it take care of me because when I leave, I want choice. And that was really important to me.
1: Okay. So you got clear on what you wanted and you, you stuck with that, um, and, and and made peace with that. It sounds like mm-hmm. you had to make some kind of peace with that. Like, okay. So does that mean you went to San Francisco?
2: I lived in San Francisco for, I forget exactly, by six months. Then went back to Los Angeles for four months. And then I moved to London for three months. So yeah, it was, <laughs> it was a long year. And it was hard. It was hard to keep that secret. Um, and it was hard. because I didn't have any confidence that I could feel I could trust. I was a little distant from my parents. And there was something empowering of like, okay, this is my own little internal warm secret. And like I said, I really wanted to, you know, take care of things. And I wanted, didn't, I didn't want people to look at me differently. And I just wanted to make sure that the system was solid when I left.
1: Did you have a preordained, you know, a, a preset position of like, okay, here's where I hit the, this is when I pull the plug. Or was there something in there like, I'll know when it's time. Again, I'm, tr- I'm trying to speak to that resistance, which is, I may not be happy, but I'll stay here because this is what I know. And so I can imagine there's guys out there that are like still in this situation talking themselves into like, yeah, this is why I should stay with it. But they haven't really Mm -hmm. set the point that they would leave. That makes Mm -hmm. sense. So did you have that preset point that you like?
2: I I did. I had a little image of it. Um, So that was July of 2013. I was 43. And I said on my 47th birthday at the absolute latest, I was going to take my business partner, Nicole, out to an expensive dinner. And then just hand her my resignation letter during the dinner. And, you know, that I was going to stay for another month or two after that. But so, yeah, I had a little image. So I said by March of 2017, that was my max when okay. I was going to stay. Okay.
1: Obviously, you did it before then. So I did. Um, I, I like that point because I think a lot of us, we get into a situation where we're waiting for permission. We're waiting until everything's worked out. And what we're trying to avoid is that discomfort. We're trying to avoid that awkward or whatever, that just that thing that's gonna be painful or uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so we're we're trying to find that scenario where, where there won't be any problems. I get asked by clients all the time, hey, what do I say so they don't get mad? What do I say so they don't get upset? And it's like, wow, that's a different conversation than how do I be truthful about what's going on mm-hmm. and about what I want. So all right. So you got out before you your absolute Deadline? How'd, what happened? How? What was the? What was the point that you got out?
2: Well, you know what's that? The best laid plans of mice and men. So I, <laughs> I, I just endeavored to be solid for those, you know, three years, those two, two years plus. But I was miserable when it came down to it, and I started to get in more arguments with the executive committee. I started to get more and more distant from my partner. When you have a secret, you change. When you when you have mm. something. It's, That's significant. You have to change. And I was working with sensitive people and I was working just as hard. I was producing just as much. I was leading courses. And like I said, I moved to Los Angeles and I ran the London division for a while. And there was just a part of me that was cancerous. And um, did they know you said
1: they were sensitive? So were they were they pressing you about this or how was it showing up that that there was something not being said?
2: There was just more arguing. There was more tension I was, my patience, like I have a great deal of patience. My patience was shorter. I had more of a temper when it came down to things. My unhappiness was permeating out of my skin when it came down to it. And did
1: anybody confront you about this and you had to lie about leaving or not leaving?
2: They had no idea that leaving was even a thought process for me. So I never had a lie. Are you thinking about leaving? No one ever asked me that. Mm -hmm. But people were concerned. But here's the thing that happened. So with all this negative feeling, I started to form an ulcer. I started to have really bad acid reflux. And starting in, I think it was April, I eventually left in July of 2014. But starting in April, I started to live on Tums that, you know, get yeah. by bottle after bottle because I was in pain and I was throwing up and there would start to be blood in my throat. And I was oh, like, God. okay, <laughs> there's... <laughs> Okay. Here's your signal, right? (laughs) I hear you. And a few other things happened that I was willing to be honest about it. But my body was really the thing that said, you know, no mas, I can't do this anymore. This double life, this tension is getting to you and you need to do something.
1: And so what happened? Your body's telling you to get out. Had you reached the level that you were comfortable leaving yet? Or was it like, you know what, it's time to go. My body's saying it's time to go.
2: So I was in London. I was running London. I was supposed to be in London for a year. I had a um call back to new york city so i left london within three days and i was in new york city it was the summer of 2017 uh, sorry summer 2014 it was hot and um, my business partner and i were arguing and i i decided to just say it then and so i went to my computer and i wrote up a term sheet of what i would need to leave i folded it and put it in my inside pocket And then we went to lunch, and then we were getting frozen yogurt, I think, in the the West Village. And I said to her, listen, I need to tell you something. Like, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life doing this. I want want to live differently. And I'm willing to give you another year or two of my life to make sure that things handle well. But at this point, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life. So then a few days pass. And then she said, "Hey, why don't you go take some time off? <laughs> why don't you take like a week off and go visit your, your parents and and go spend some time?" And I was like, "Yes." <laughs> so I jumped on a plane from New York to San Francisco. But you'd
1: had no vacations, right? You just been no
2: vacation, nonstop yeah. for years, years. Um, not even like a Sunday off. It was pretty much nonstop. So I I flew back to San Francisco. I drove to see my parents. And I told them I was thinking about leaving. I went down to Los Angeles and I was hanging out in Venice beach. I got an offer for another week off from them. I said, gladly. And then one or two days into this, to the second week off, Nicole said, Hey, are you done? Cause if you're done, let's just have you be done. Like your heart is so big. She called me a Bodhisattva. Like you do, you're dedicated to it, but it just seems like you're done. And I was like, this is all over text message too. And I was like, yeah, I'm done. She's like, okay, let's work it out. She was super kind, super warm, super loving, no strife, no arguing. And I just felt taken care of. And that was it. I never went back to work after that. I stayed in Venice beach and started this last chapter of my life or this most recent chapter of my life.
1: Do you think you would have taken a stand for yourself? Had she not been the one to do it for you? Like, how long do you think you would have kind of stayed in that, in that, that dynamic?
2: On that vacation time, I basically said, "Okay, I was willing to go back. I was willing to do that year or two years if they wanted me, but I was going to change my lifestyle. I was going to make some demands. One of them is that I was going to go down to a 50-hour week. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just not going to work 80 or 90 hours. I'm going to go down to a 50-hour a week. I'm going to start to build a social life. I'm going to start to take care of myself. I was going to start to go to yoga. There were all these things I wanted to do. So I had, I was going to go back." After those two weeks off, and say I'm willing to stay for another year, but I want to to do things differently. But I never got the the need to do that because they offered me my walking papers.
1: Okay, so you get your walking papers. Uh, then what? Are you just cast out into oblivion? What What was that? What happened then?
2: Pretty pretty much. So the scene is I you know I found that out on, on a Thursday. I went to a yoga class. I thought about it. I said yes, and they're like, okay. So I have. Have a rental car. I have no no stuff. I mean, I really when I I had like a box and a bag. I had no possessions. I had a little bit of money, and um, they gave me some money to tide me over until the paperwork was signed. And I just you know just was um, open. Now the thing that happened, and this is something maybe we can talk about a bit more for your listeners, in that point between July 2013 when I decided to leave. In July 2014 when I actually left, I had spent the entire year mocking up a plan of what my life was going to be like. I had fatna- fantasized about it. I'd be at the, you know, I'd be walking in London or riding my bike in London and thinking about it. And so, from that time, I figured out I was going to start a consulting business. I figured out Venice Beach was the place I wanted to land. I figured out how much money I would need. Like I really mocked up how, and I wanted to live this next phase of my life. And so when I did get my walking papers, I did have a plan in my mind to figure out what I want to do next. Let's
1: talk about that because a lot of us can have a plan and it just becomes this thing that remains out there. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's a vision board and it stays a vision board. It never, we, we never really connect the dots. So how did the plan help you? How did it, how did it, how did it challenge you to actually move that into a reality?
2: The plan was my foundation. And I think there's, so there's people who are afraid to implement their desires. Let's call it desire rather than a plan. Cause it really was a desire of yeah, how plans I wanted are, to live.
1: Plans can go either way. Like you right. said. Yeah. So,
2: so I had desires and I said, what do I have to lose? I had been in an intense experience for 12 years, a uh, 90 hour per week 12 year experience, basically. And I said, what do you have to lose just for going for it? And you're going to figure it out along the way what wants to happen. Um, I left one taste and then I, you know, started dating a girl I really liked for a long time. But she said, I'll never date you while you're on the road. You're like in the military. And I was like, so I finally ended up in Venice Beach. She was in Venice Beach and we dated. And it was horrible. I was so not ready for a relationship. I needed time to heal. I needed time to find myself again. And so plans like that or desires like that, I, I went for it. I thought, oh, this isn't working so well. Let's figure something else out. So it was I gave myself permission to have my desires to see where the desires led, but also alter them as I needed because I knew that I would grow and find myself in this new iteration. But people are afraid to say, what if I do this and I get stuck? Well, you, you don't ever need to get stuck again. I never needed to get stuck again.
1: How so? Like, because I, I, I can imagine if we, we can get married to the plan and lose sight of the desire, lose connection with the desire, we get we get attached to this vision. Okay, I'm going to be a consultant. I'm going to live here and blah 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 blah. But then, if we've lost touch with our own desire, if we lost touch with what actually has us feel alive and expansive, then it just becomes another project to execute. So, mm-hmm. how did how did you? Yeah, walk us through that, because that that to me is the is the big thing here. If you've gotten used to numbing yourself in order to survive, the next thing just become can become an opportunity to continue to numb yourself in order to create this thing that looks good in your head and, and sounds good mm-hmm. to your ego and says, yeah, self-image loves that. That's the next version of me I want to be.
2: Well, there's a story down the line in 2015 we can talk about uh, in a bit where I actually recreated that prison in a way. But let's stick with that initial six, seven months of okay. my time alone, and I, I was pretty thick-headed and stuck. I thought I was fine. I didn't think there was anything to talk about. I thought I, you know, I felt healthy, and then going through this relationship I just mentioned, where I felt really stuck and really inert, and my sexuality wasn't flowing, and my I was still short-tempered. And then from that relationship, I I got therapy. I went to see a somatic therapist. And the somatic therapist had me like beating up pillows and doing EMDR and and scream therapy. And and I started to see that there were so many layers inside of me that I was not connected to. From the therapy, from uh, revealing myself to friends, to speaking to my parents, to reading, I started to see and I had to take my time to discover what else was in me that I needed, so the reflection was super important, and then my therapist was a lifesaver, a life changer, because I started to see what I truly wanted uh, due to his attention.
1: I, I want to underline that because I think so many guys just don't understand the value of what therapy can be, um, and what I'm taking away from this for, about you is that it—you got to pull back all this kind of scar tissue and all this, you know, junk that you piled over who you really were, but most importantly, like what you really wanted, like what you took a stand for, what really mattered to you. There was more to you. There were more dimensions to you than just being able to, to build a business and make it successful and to execute.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, oh, huge. Totally. huge. I mean, don't be thick headed guys. It's like, if therapy isn't right for you, get a coach. If you, if coaching isn't right, then find a men's group. If a men's group isn't right, go to a 12 step program. I'm not sure what it is, Your ability to have people reflect to you what they see with their approval is so uber important for us as men because it's hard to see when you're moving so fast who you are. And my friends and my colleagues and my coaches and my therapist have all really made me into a healthier, smarter, more empowered man.
1: What I'm getting is that you've got more access to who you really are. You've got more it's like you took all the this tape off of these gauges on the dashboard. Mm-hmm. Instead of like one that was like go go go, you've mm-hmm. got all these others that are that are giving you more information about who you are, what you what you want, what you stand for, what what actually has you feel alive, more free, more peaceful, um those types of things.
2: Right. And to continue your analogy, it's not just the tape off the gauges as I can't see There's a whole nother gauge underneath the desk to the left, you know, behind a secret, you know, platform. (laughs) Like I didn't have the key to that. And I had to figure out how to open up that key. So there's, I'm so much more than I thought I was. I, there's so many more pieces of me that I just couldn't see because they're blind spots. They were in my shadow and doing the work, doing the work of self-reflection, which was walking and talking and writing and crying and knowing and admitting, admitting, like I had to admit to myself there was no one to blame at one taste for my experience. Like I could blame other people. They did this to me. No, like I am responsible for my own situation. I was responsible for my health. I was responsible for not speaking up. Hey, I don't want to move cities again. Like all those things were my responsibility and therapy and time and self-reflection. Once I was able to say this is my responsibility, then I'm not victimized. Then, when I'm not victimized, I could say to myself, "Oh, these are my motivations for doing that. This is who I am, and then I don't have to be prey for the motivations that sit in my shadows. Wow,
1: all right, so you you're getting this awareness you you're coming out of this this kind of fog mm-hmm. and and but then you mentioned you still kind of still playing the same game. What happened there? What was happening?
2: <laughs> well, this is under the uh, the story of how Rob shot himself in the foot, and <laughs> I am an entrepreneur, and I am proud to say that I've had a huge success in One Taste and a few other companies, uh, where I built One Taste from a paper napkin to an international seven figure firm. I can also proudly admit that I had a colossal failure in Los Angeles called LA Mother, uh, that happened from March 2015 to about July 2000 or August 2016, and. What happened was I was bored. So I left in July 2014, started my consulting business, working out of my house, building, you know, uh, like a 70K or 80K business, happy with my clients, but bored because I was so used to the 90-hour-per-week world. I hadn't healed that part of myself. I was so used to the intensity and and the, the juice of stress and Holding, And so I met a woman and we decided to open up an event space in Los Angeles called LA mother with $11,500 rent, about a $40,000 per month nut with all the employees. And we signed a five-year lease and basically the business never moved. It just never worked. Mm. And so in the sixth or seventh month of it, I realized, oh my God, i put myself right back into that stressful prison that I would worked so hard to leave.
1: Okay. And I'm sure you did some analysis around this. Why, why'd you go back? And I get that it, was it just familiar? It was, and I, you can say that you were addicted to this and that, but what did that stuff provide you? What did that urgency provide you?
2: Well, here's okay, great. So there again, I want to just give credit where credit is due. Um, this is my therapist. I started uh, started doing plant medicine at this point. This is a huge learning for me. We can talk about that if you wish. Um, But I started to see my secret motivations in the shadows. One was I just missed being around people. Mm. I had lived my life for 12, 14 years, constantly surrounded by people, and then ended up in this house in Venice, this beautiful house in Venice, but by myself most of the time. And I, I was lonely when it came down to it. The second thing is, is I got validation and value, self-validation. I got props for being in a stressful situation from solving problems. I liked the weight on my shoulders. It had me feel like a man. If things were challenging, that meant that I was powerful. The third thing is, is I didn't have belief that I could do it by myself. And this was huge. I wrote an article about this. It's about how I used to live in people's shadows. So I hired people, like I hired my dad to stand behind him. I, quote, hired Nicole to be the front person so I could be the man behind the curtain. And then I hired this woman, Franny, quote again, to be the person in front because I didn't have confidence that I could do it by myself. So I co-created another situation with another powerful woman to um, – I didn't believe that I could do it by myself. And so these are the things I started to see. The last thing I saw, and this was more recent, was that I always knew I had the strength and the character to be a leader, a front man, but I never thought I had the words. I always thought I needed someone else to speak the words. And what I found by writing and doing my podcast was, wow, I also have the words. I also have the character and I have the integrity to be the man to make an impact in the world.
1: Is this when tough love starts to come into play, or I mean, mm-hmm. what, you had this realization, and so is this, like, oh shit, I've got to stop hiding behind other people.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and so was tough love, your way of playing with that, or or how did you how did you recognize this was the time for you to to get out from underneath other people?
2: Tough love started off in late 2015, um, basically as a screw you to courses and workshops. I had taught workshops for 14 years. I was so tired of the enrollment game. I was so tired of the logistics. And so I was like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. No more live workshops. I'm done. You know, it was just like, ah. And then I said, but I still have something to say. So I'll do this thing, this podcast, and I'll set up my computer, and I'll buy a microphone, and I'll sit in front of it, and I'll speak for Forty minutes, and it'll be my little hobby. There was this movie, uh, talk radio with Christian Slater. Uh-huh. I don't know if you ever saw that. Yeah. I love that movie. It was like teenage angst. I loved it, and I wanted to do my own talk radio. That was really what I wanted. Uh-huh. And then what happened was after you know six or nine months of doing mediocre shows, good shows but with low quality, I started to realize that tough love wasn't a hobby. It wasn't a screw you to workshops. Tough love was my platform for me to to make an impact on the world. Mm. And that was super important for me to really realize. And so all these things were happening. And so I decided to like, wow, i need to I need to take this a little more seriously. And so all these things were happening. I found in the platform of Tough Love that I had my voice, and I had something that people were valuable. And as I watched my downloads exponentially fly up, I mean, it's gotten to the point of ridiculous recently. Um, there's just a pride in knowing. And so my whole life has changed because I was willing to say, my name is Rob Candel, and I've got something to say.
1: I'm loving hearing this. Uh, I can relate to this. I fell ass backwards into doing this very podcast. Mm -hmm. For a long time, I saw my role as standing shoulder to shoulder with the listener and like, okay, well, I get a chance to talk to this guy. So I'm going to ask the questions I want to hear because I know that's what my listeners want to hear. And then Mm -hmm. over time, I start to, have formed my own opinions, and as a coach, I'm in the trenches every day with guys. I'm mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm not just a listener anymore. I have mm-hmm. my own things to say, and and notice that the the podcast itself, like playing the interviewer, was uh, hiding. It was it was mm-hmm. me hiding. It mm-hmm. wasn't where I felt uh as electric and as juiced. But I'm like when I get into great conversations like this, I just love it. This is what my life is is having great conversations. So, mm-hmm. but that kind of role like playing a role was i recognized isn't didn't really work for me and and so i you know this is where i've been playing with these videos and i, I call it playing but i know it's where i'm most alive this is where i'm mm-hmm. enjoying things is creating my own stuff and and putting it out there when you were um talk about the resistance you had i mean or or is that you just did you just tell yourself it was play so that you would move through it and you wouldn't be attached to it was that your way of dealing with the okay i'm not hiding out anymore
2: do you know when you like break up with a woman or she breaks up with you and you're like, yeah, it's, you know, whatever. It wasn't that much fun anyway. <laughs> ah. But underneath it, you're just like, oh, you're dying on the inside. It, it's it's a form of non-confrontation. It's a form of minimizing. And that's what I was doing with the podcast. I was like, yeah, it's a podcast. And, you know, I used to live in Venice Beach and there was Finnegan the dog barking in the background. And I, I lived three blocks away from a firehouse and, you know no soundproofing in the room no sound dampening and so the fire trucks would go and like ah it's Venice. this is on the podcast as i'm recording live um and what i what i just saw was oh no rob like this is resistance this minimizing this avoidance is a minimizing and a resistance of your power you everyone really has something to say in this world and if you choose you can make an impact. And that impact could be with your child, that impact could be with your school, that impact could be with your friends. But for me, I want to make a difference in the life of men, because I think things are pretty fucked up nowadays, especially around men and women relating. And I have skills that I've learned. And I'm like, okay, it's my responsibility if I choose to accept it. To make an impact in the world and stop fucking around, get off your ass and do it. And that's the conversation I had with myself.
1: How did that come about? How did, how did, how did that, that's a pretty big turn to, to have that kind of a wake up to, to, to get out of this game of minimizing and diminishing, as you said, mm-hmm. and to really take a fucking stand, like really put put that stake in the ground and say this is what I'm taking a stand for. So, was it you just you found that on the toilet one morning, reading reading through your text, or? Or (laughs) what? Like, what happened?
2: Um, What really happened, I had to clear away my own self-doubt. I'm a pretty confident guy. I have a really strong ego structure. But I still had doubt. Like, the question, who am I to say this? Like, it it was more like the only thing I truly truly need to do was stop minimizing myself. Mm. Once I said to myself, no, Rob, you're a badass. You're awesome. You're smart. You have important things to say you're funny, you're good on the mic. It was just like like taking off this heavy cloak I was wearing of self-doubt and self-flagellation and self-depreciation. Once I took that off, I was like, okay, now what do I want to do with it? And what I wanted to do with it was make a difference in other men's and women's and people's lives. And so once I took off the cloak, I could say, okay, let's begin. And it was a choice, like every other. I could have done anything in this world, but I wanted. I couldn't let it go. It was like, you have something to say, and you need to keep going.
1: I like that you de- how you describe the cloak because it seems like it's about. Um, hey, I want. I don't want to seem bombastic. I don't want to seem arrogant. But it's really a protection. It's it's mm-hmm. really just a false uh, uh, way that we protect ourselves and there's what i've found is that there's a middle path here of just owning the truth owning mm-hmm. the truth of the skills it's not like you just came out of nowhere it's that you'd been leading for years mm-hmm. you've been in countless i imagine situations where you've helped people and mm-hmm. so it was it was just a matter of owning the truth instead of well there's the truth but now i'm going to cover it up mhm uh, and that's such I- a difference there i want to i want to help the listener get is that most of us when I ask them about themselves, they 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 tell me the bullshit through the cloak instead of just owning the truth. Mm-hmm. Just like I've done this, I've done that, and this is where I can show up and really help somebody.
2: Right? Because to me, I mean, service is um, selfish. To serve is a selfish act. I serve for my own pleasure. It's really when I help someone, when I can, when I put my attention on someone, paid or not paid and I feel like their life changes, that feels good to me. That allows me to feel my love. When I can talk to a man about his chauvinism and his arrogance, I can love my own chauvinism and my own arrogance. When I help a man learn how to communicate with a woman better, then I can take those lessons home to my special relationship, you know, to my amazing woman. And so I serve because it has me feel better about myself. And hopefully, my service is in alignment with what these people want and what the world wants. And so far, the feedback's been pretty good. But you can serve in any way that fits you. There's not one-stop shop. Like I would never recommend that people follow my path. I would recommend people follow their path. And that path could be a soup kitchen. that That path could be uh, doing one anonymous good thing a day. You know, you know, buy someone's uh, toll, a bridge toll. Or sneak a coffee on someone um, at work, someone you know who loves coffee. Just sneak them a coffee in the morning. Do one nice thing for a person. You're impacting the world. It doesn't have to be all out. You have to find out what you want to do and how you want to do it.
1: Um, I'm, 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 I love this. This is so true because I've I found that the most miserable I can be is when the focus is on me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think it's one of the reasons why I've always been a coach, even from a really young age, is this I found a way to escape being in me like that. Mm-hmm. Like the, suffering the pain in the ass that it is to be me from mm-hmm. so for, for better or for worse. But this is where if I don't coach for a while, because I take a week off every month from coaching, you know, my clients and I take a break and and I notice I'm itchy. I'm like, oh mm-hmm. I think I'll just call this guy and see if it's like I, I wonder yeah, if this I know is a text. Yeah, <laughs> I wonder if there's a shadow side. It's like, oh, I'm getting sick of focusing on me again. I, I like to I like to be able to 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 help others. It gives me a break from my own neuroses and and just to, just even like um, I notice when I'm when I'm working with people and they're starting their own business or whatever, especially coaches, and their focus is on themselves. And I'm like, wow, you you're missing the point. You got to mm-hmm. shift that focus into into what are others looking for. And the practice that you just described would would really challenge somebody to say, yeah, what would be appreciated? What would be of service to this person? You know, like you have to pay attention. Does this person even like coffee? You'd have to mm-hmm. get out of your, your head out of your own ass. Did you see even pay attention on that minute level um to get into that? And then mindset. you gotta
2: figure out the the brand and you gotta figure <laughs> out the simple latte half cap, half whatever. You know, like but that's so much fun. And then you can like sneak it on their desk and then go to the corner and watch them sip their coffee and they're and they're like, Oh my god, how did this person know? Mm. Now don't create a stalker situation, you know, like don't have them feel strange around it. But it could be something as simple as a flower. Like I would sneak flowers onto people's windshields. Mm. It's just one nice thing. It's one nice thing to have people feel seen because we, we live in a society of isolation and it's getting more intense. The, the advent of the smartphone has shifted significantly how we relate to the world. And so people are feeling more and more isolated with more options that are over you know overwhelming. And so if you can connect to a person, you know, it could just be as simple as, hey, do you want to go to lunch today? Or a text message. Hey, I was thinking about you. How are you today? These are the things that impact lives. And it's it's a pay it forward, expansive thing. It's like you help one person feel a little more alive. They put a little more attention on their kid or their spouse and then it it just propagates. That's how we impact the world.
1: It's a fire, you build it little by little. And I for somebody that's out there, I think most of the time we think it's gotta be grand. We're we're looking at the vision board, it's gotta be something that satisfies our self-image and it's gotta be it's gotta make me look good. And I feel like that's the trap. I was coaching a guy years ago music producer in L.A., pretty miserable guy. And, mm-hmm. and, but if you, if you got a snapshot of his world and the people he was in touch with on a daily basis, it's one of those like, wow, that must be mm-hmm. so amazing. Fucking miserable, right? Mm-hmm. So I had him track. Like, what's the thing that actually has you feel alive or has you feel good throughout the week? He, he went to Home Depot. He said that the, the highlight of his, of his week, he was in Home Depot and some old lady asked him to help her find a, a light bulb. Mm. Now, it sounds... Mm-hmm. Silly, it sounds sad, mm-hmm. but he really enjoyed that. He got to mm-hmm. drop this persona of being somebody and just help somebody, and and he found something there. But I, I that's where I want to help the, whoever's listening and just remind myself: like, doesn't have to be a big deal. Go find that little thing and then build on it. That could be a skill that you develop, and and you'd be so amazed at how fulfilling those little things can can be.
2: Completely, and don't buy people's cover story, please. I know so many beautiful, attractive, powerful women who are lonely, like desperately lonely because people think they have it all together. You know, that guy that's all polished, you know, just sit down. You don't have to assume anything. Just say, hey, how's it going? Put your quality attention on. People put on really amazing facades. We live in a society where optimization, optimization of your social media profiles is a natural pastime. It's like it's people spent so much time on putting the polish of things looking grand. And there's a lot of lonely, isolated people out there. So don't buy the cover story.
1: Well, it's also an opportunity, right? I was talking to my wife this morning, like I'm dealing with another phase of uncertainty. It would be easy to think that guys like you and me with our websites and we help these people and we got that, like, it's easy to think we've got it all together. So Mm -hmm. I know that I wrestle with uncertainty on a, it's just always there. (laughs) It's -hmm. just like, there's always a. A, a facet, you know, a gauge that says a certain level of uncertainty. It's not like I ever get to escape from it. Is that is that true for you?
2: Oh yeah. And by, let me just say one thing. What a gift you gave to your wife. I mean, to me, Trip, that is a sign of a true man who can be vulnerable and say to his partner, "I'm feeling uncertain about this." That is so important. And people don't do that. We want, especially as men, we're supposed to act cool, calm, and collected, like we have it. And we're fucked up inside, and we're nervous inside the gift of relaying yourself to your partner it just you know that is amazing. Mm. I want to acknowledge that.
1: oh cool, thanks,
2: yeah, um, but the the point is like we we look like we have it all handled, and we don't and but that's fun too. It's fun, like I love puzzles. I love challenges. You know, Morgan's like, you love the big games of you have to go to this part of Los Angeles. You got to make it to this part by this time. At the same time, you have 17 phone calls along the way. You love the dramatic games. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do. It's true. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I think just being human and real is so important.
1: Do you find, you know, I, I, as a coach, I find that I have this kind of awareness of like my shit, like whatever my shit is. And then the the people that I work with, like I, I I can kind of identify their shit either. I'm projecting it on them, but I can just kind of get it. Like when somebody comes to you and they're saying, Hey Rob, I want to help you. I I want you to help me be able to do more in 90 hours a week. Do you get kind Mm -hmm. of flared up by it and, and want to go the other direction with them? How do you, how do you deal with the guy that's a version of you who you were a few years ago? When he shows up in your life, do you, do you unload on him? Do you, or do you, uh, yeah. How do you work with that?
2: Never unload. I mean, I would train coach. I've trained coaches. I've trained over 300 coaches in my career. Um, I still help coaches build their businesses. And I'll say this to every coach, no matter what you're dealing with, it's going to show up in your next client. There's some natural law of the universe. If you're worried about this, like it just happens time and time again. That's why it's so important for a coach to deal with their own stuff. Coaches who don't do their own work um, are really not serving their clients. Like I need to go to therapy to be a good coach and a good teacher because I need to know what my triggers are. Now, once I've looked and dealt with my triggers, I've experienced it. Then I'm actually really good with guys who come in for their 90 hour week goals because I've been there. And I could say to them, ah, I remember back in 2008, I was working 90 hours a week because I was trying to avoid this and this and this. (laughs) And I can talk, you know, like this old grandpa story. But the the point is, is that I can actually say to him, "I've been down that hole. This is my experience in the hole. This is a thing I was avoiding, or this is a thing I wanted." Does any of this resonate for you? And they'll be like, "Well, this kind of does." And then we can pull the thread of that conversation to find out. And so it's a Coaches who who um, over advertise, who say they've done this and this and haven't done it, it's not nice. Like be true. If you only have this much experience, be honest about that and and work on it. Your life experience. But my point is is that to it's it's my job as a coach to approve. It's my job as a coach not to push my agenda on my clients. To hear them, to listen to them, to play with them. And at the same time, offer my reflection and my experience because that's what they're paying me for. Mm, yeah,
1: I like that. I like the approval part. Um, and I and also like, we got to walk our own path. Like you, True. you might see how it's it, it's going to work out, but at the same time, it's our job to just let the guy. He's got to he's got to go there. He's got to do it on its own. It's not something for us to impose on him.
2: Right. I'm so grateful for those 90 hour weeks. I'm so grateful for those 14 years of building one taste. I'm so grateful for LA Mother. I'm so grateful because all of them have made me into the man I am today. And I am a truly, ecstatically happy man. And I never could say that before. But I'm a happy man because I went all through all these experiences. I figured out who I wanted to be. And now I'm pursuing those goals. So don't feel your, quote, mistakes. Don't feel your trauma. Your trauma builds up who you are. Embrace it. Respect it. Take responsibility for it. And then be proud of it because use it from that. Yeah, use it. And then it's a great story, you know, like my lead in story for all my courses is a time of total embarrassment, a total when I made a total fool of myself. LA Mother is a scar on you know, on my back, but it's I'm a it's a scar I'm proud of. And I never need to do that ever again. <laughs>
1: I love it. Great story. I appreciate you sharing. Um, What's the best way to find you and and all the things that you're offering these days?
2: The best way to find me is toughlove.live, T-U-F-F love.live. I have a mailing list where I send out one email per week, which is a thing I'm really working on I'm teaching a men's workshop. I'll be doing that for the next year um, in month increments. I do a four week accelerator. But everything really is on toughlove.live. Um, and if you have any questions, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram. I'm everywhere. But toughlove.live is my central point.
1: Beautiful. Uh, Rob Candel, thank you so much, man.
2: it my absolute pleasure. Thank you, Tripp.
1: If these interviews are helping you, then please visit the new man on iTunes and leave us a positive review so others can discover the show more easily. Thanks for listening.